God is good. All the time. Was this a powerful night of worship or what? Just praise God. Anytime you feel the presence of God, you want to stay there a little longer. You just want to stay there a little longer. Never take that for granted. And when it comes your way, just bask in His presence. I want to welcome everybody that joins us online every week. I want to welcome our CM campus. Uh, just so grateful for all of you. And thank you for being here tonight. We've got a full house on a Wednesday. you got to love that. Amen. Some years back when my grandson Eli was just a little bitty guy, he was playing a baseball game. And he was called out on a pitch that almost hit the ground, but that's how it goes. You know, that's just how it goes. What was remarkable was that Eli was a pretty docile kid when he was little, and they called him out, and he took three steps, and then he turned around toward the umpire and flashed him the loser sign. (laughs) (laughs) It was completely out of character. It was was just unbelievable. He just flashes him the loser sign. (laughs) I was in a lawn chair on the first baseline, I sprinted to the dugout and just lit him up. I know what you're thinking. Not my role, not my place. Didn't care, still don't. When Eli and I were processing things later, we have a great relationship. I just love that kid. When we were processing things later, uh, I asked him what was printed on the back of his jersey. And he said, 30. <laughs> And that was true, but it wasn't what I was getting at. I said, what else? He said, Bishop. I said, you got to understand, you don't just represent yourself. You represent your family. You represent all of us. Our name is entrusted to you. And what you do reflects on us. You see, it isn't just about you. It's way bigger than that. I want to share with you as we enter this piece of of Colossians, it's not just about us. It's way bigger than that. When I was growing up, I was always on the eye for hypocrites. As a preacher's kid, it seemed like my sworn duty. It just felt like part of the job description. (laughs) Hypocrites, in my mind, were people who behaved one way or purported one set of values in church, but they behaved very differently outside of church. You got to remember, I was raised Southern Baptist, right? You, you didn't drink, didn't smoke, you didn't swear. There was any number of things you didn't do. And if you did, you were supposed to have the decency to not let people know. And so I remember sometimes I would see somebody in an obviously hypocritical situation, like someone from our church smoking a cigarette publicly. And I just remember my hypocrite radar was just focused in right there. Now, my dad, dad didn't identify hypocrites. Dad liked to torture them. And I remember on one particular occasion, we were in the square in Pinckneyville, Illinois, and dad saw one of his parishioners smoking a cigarette. And he saw it happening. I mean, they were sitting there dragging on the old heat rod, right? Right in front of him. And dad walks up to her and she sticks it under her arm. So guess what dad did? He talked for a long time. Now, I wasn't that clever when I was a kid. I just identified 
hypocrites on behalf of the Lord. For me, the gap between who people should have been and who they actually were was hypocrisy. And though I was a kid and certainly a card-carrying member of the Young Pharisees, I was not entirely wrong. In both Judaism and Christianity, there is a strong moral component to the faith that demands the congruence of what we believe and how we act. What we believe is absolutely expected to impact what we do, how we do it, and even the motives that drive those actions. The reality is we don't see this dynamic in the pagan religions in first century Rome. In fact, religious people were most normally associated with immorality. You realize that in most of the pagan temples, the way they raised money was sacred prostitution, right? They didn't give tithes and offerings. It was sacred prostitution, later replaced by bake sales. And so what we have in the early Roman Empire is an ethic that religious people are intrinsically what we would call immoral. One of the things that made Israel unique among everybody else that defined them as God's people was the morality, the Ten Commandments. If you really look at what the Ten Commandments do, they say this is how people who don't know God act, and this is how people who do know God act. We are different, and there is a moral component, and that moral component was very much a defining characteristic of Judaism and of early Christianity. If hypocrisy is the word we might use to describe the gap between what we're supposed to believe and what we do, then authenticity would be the word we would use to describe the congruence. And all the while, we must always remember we do not only represent ourselves. We all wear the name of Christ on our backs. Verse 17, And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Each of us are ambassadors of Christ. We are ambassadors of Christianity, and you are an ambassador of Christ church. We may not want to be ambassadors. I get that. But it's as foolish as a professional athlete saying, I'm not a role model. The reality is, it doesn't matter what you say, you're a professional athlete. You are a role model, whether you want to be or not. Like it or not, the way we behave as professing Christians has direct impact on the way that people view the Christian faith. In 2017, I released a book that was a collection of stories. And a huge part of what compelled me to write that book was I was walking through a really difficult time in the life of my extended family. It's funny because I wrote the book for me. And when I was done, I was going to just never do anything with it because it helped me get through. You guys ever done anything like that? It helped me get through. I asked Noel to read it kind of on a ping. And I said, Noel, do you think this could possibly help anyone else? And she said, sure, I, I really do think it could. I said, well, then fantastic. We'll, we'll just publish it and, and we'll give all the proceeds to the church and we'll just see if it helps somebody. So when I wrote this particular book, I, I was cross-threaded. I was really disappointed. I was cross-threaded. And, and you can kind of 
hide that for a little while, but then it's going to come out after a while. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? You can be frustrated at somebody for a while, but if you don't figure it out, that's going to come out at some point. I was just not in a great place. And then one night it occurred to me that though the event that we were dealing with in our lives was certainly no fault of of mine, I needed to deal with it very differently than I was. And I needed to figure things out sooner as opposed to later. And so here's the essay that I published that's in the book, How I Don't Want to Live. I've been thinking a lot about how I want to live. Actually, I've been thinking more about how I don't want to live. First of all, I don't want to live with unforgiveness in my heart. I could. In fact, I think it's much easier than forgiving. I just don't want to. Second, I don't want to live angry. There are plenty of things to get mad about, and some things should honestly make us mad, but I don't want to live that way. I've never found that love and anger share the same space very well. And third, I don't want to live cautiously. It's not that I'm reckless. It's just that I want to live a life that plays to win instead of plays not to lose. I want to live fully. I want to make an impact for the better in the tiny space I occupy on this spinning ball. If I can make an impact in some way, so much the better. It occurs to me that in answering these three big questions about how I don't want to live, that I've actually determined how I do want to live. To choose forgiveness means the hard work of actually forgiving those who have hurt me is on the table. To choose love requires me to control my impulses, speak and write thoughtfully, and live in future hope, even and especially when the present is biting solid wood. To live fully requires letting go of things like security and comfort that conspire to make me live a lesser life. As we ponder the quality of our lives, we do well to remember that Jesus came to give us precisely the lives we could have never had without him. I'm going to say that one more time. Jesus came to give us precisely the kind of lives we could have never had without him. I've come that they might have life and have life abundantly. John 10.10. How did I arrive at this point? I think what really motivated me through it was that I am an ambassador of God. Oh, I, I could have stood still and told myself I was right, and I may have been, but I would have become a cautionary tale. Or I could forgive. I could choose life, and I could one day believe that what we were going through would be used by God to bring hope to others. You may be going through something really difficult right now, and and you can get mad and bitter and twisted sideways, and you can do whatever you want with that, but there's nothing in it for you. Or you can choose a different path. And if you choose the path of love and forgiveness and grace, I assure you there will be a day when God will use you to touch the lives of people who are going through then what you are going through now. It's just how God works. I will add one other thought before we move along. 
and it has to do with Colossae. Not many years after Colossians was written, Colossae was decimated by an earthquake. Took the whole city out. Just took them out. So this is an urgent letter from the get-go. But what I want you to understand is the recipients of the letter had no idea how little time they actually had. None of us know how much time we have, do we? Oh, you can play the statistics, right? If you're young and healthy, you may have more time and good luck in your foray into actuarial sciences. But at the end of the day, none of us have any guarantee about the future. What we have is now. What we have is what is in front of us. And that's what we have to maximize. They really didn't have much time to hear and heed. God's instruction was delivered through Paul. And I want to suggest to you, maybe we don't either. A lot of times we, have, we think we have all the time in the world, but we don't even know how much time the world has, much less our time in it. And now Paul shifts gears. He's going to get even more practical. In fact, he's going to get practical to the point it's going to make us uncomfortable, which is what Paul's really good at. The question being exact, addressed here is exactly how should Christian people live together in practical ways? He's talked about how we should live together as church, but now how do you live together outside of church? Lives aligned with Christ produce healthy, nourishing, and symbiotic relationships. These things don't play out generally. They don't just play out generally with things like love and mercy. They also play out specifically in things like marriage and parenting and family and work. Paul begins by stating what everyone in his day would have already known. We might say Paul begins by stating how it is. And then he adds something really, really radical to how it is. And that is the paradigmic shift that changed everything. But before I get to that, I really need to get to this because I, I, I feel like you got to understand Paul. I went to Greece uh, about a decade, maybe a decade and some change ago because I didn't get Paul. I just didn't understand him. And I hate to say this, I didn't like Paul a whole lot. He wasn't my favorite Bible character. You know, having lunch with Paul, pass, right? It just didn't seem fun to me. And I went to Greece to follow Paul's footsteps to read what he wrote and what he did when he was in those cities to to get my head and my heart around Paul. And I feel like that on that trip, I met Paul. And to my surprise, I I liked Paul far more than I thought I did. But there's some things you got to understand about Paul. First of all, Paul is not a social activist. He is an activist for Jesus. He's an evangelist. I get that. Part of being an activist for Jesus is you don't get to give your opinions on absolutely everything. I've been criticized over the years for not making strong political statements. I've even had people leave the church because they wished I was stronger in my politics. Reality is, they're all fine to go. They're fine to go. If you want to leave over that, fine to go. But God didn't call me to be a political pundit. He called me to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you want a pastor who's going to give the Constitution equal weight with the Bible, 
If you want a pastor who's going to take strong stands on public policy and and get involved in partisan politics, I'm just not going to be the pastor for you. Do I have opinions on political things? Oh, do I? I mean, you guys realize I've got a master's degree in divinity and I've got a master's degree in history. I know the Constitution really, really well. I've got opinions on all kinds of stuff. But that's not what God called me to do. This simply means that my calling is to connect people with Jesus Christ, and I am going to stay in that lane. Because the further I get out of that lane, the fewer people there will be for me to connect with Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's doing. That's what Paul's doing here. Paul is far less offering his thoughts on how everything should be. He's offering his thoughts on how to be faithful to Jesus right where you find yourself. He's not an idealist saying this is what culture should look like. He is saying in the midst of the culture in which we actually live, let me tell you how to be faithful to Jesus. So you got to give Paul that grace. you got to give it to him. Paul gets a bad rap from moderns. Some people wish he would have spoken more clearly about their issues and their causes. And this is going to sound terrible. And I know I say stuff that sounds terrible all the time, and I apologize for that. But Paul doesn't care what you think about it. The Bible doesn't care what you think about it. When you're dead and gone, when the sensibilities of this culture are long forgotten, the Bible's still going to be shining like a new dime. I'll guarantee you that. Paul doesn't care what liberal theologians think about him. I guarantee he's not up in heaven right now thinking, oh, they're saying such bad things about me. I guarantee you. That's not what he's doing. Paul's concerned with being faithful to God. And Paul's concerned about being faithful to the people that God has entrusted to his leadership. So in the next few verses, Paul's going to offer some very specific advice to spouses, children, parents, employees, and employers. And I'm not going to get all concerned about things that didn't concern Paul, all right? This is how it is, not how it ought to be, and this is how to be faithful in light of how it is. First of all, the Romans had very specific ideas on family structure. These started with the Greeks, and many of these had been codified. I mean, there's like manuals. I remember when I first became a pastor, they handed me a manual. I was in South Georgia, middle Georgia, and they handed me a manual on how to properly dress as a pastor. I mean, it was a manual, how to dress. I wore short pants and a Braves hat. Almost every day I was a pastor. I don't think I was a manual textbook kind of guy. But the reality is there was a manual out there. Well, in Greece and in Rome, several philosophers, thinkers, social constructors had manuals out there about what a family looked like. One of the accusations against the early church was that it was anti-family. Did you know that? This simply meant that the Christian ethic of family was different than the Roman concept. To sum things up in the empire, male Roman citizens were at the top of the food chain, period. Everything else worked from there. Concerning family life, wives and children had almost no rights. They were little more than property. Passed from a father to a husband. Concerning vocational life, servants had few rights. Slaves had no rights at all. None. 
Paul begins each thought in the sequence with what everybody knows, and then he pushes toward a higher ethic. This is not revolutionary in itself, but it, 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 it sows the seeds that create revolution. We may not think Paul went far enough, but I can tell you, these were the kind of ideas that got Paul killed by the Roman Empire. I don't want to be crass here, but the Romans could care less what you believed religiously as long as you didn't mess with them. Paul's teachings on families messed with the Roman psyche. And they end up getting him killed. So I want to explore Christian ethic on marriage, family, and vocation. And you may say, well, I don't agree with that. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Let's begin with healthy Christian marriages. Uh, keep in mind, who is Paul addressing when he writes this letter? Is he addressing society at large? No, he's addressing Christians within the church. A lot of times we erroneously think that Paul's teachings are for the greater, larger society. They are not. They are for the church. Paul never expected Nero to act like a Christian, but he expected Christians to not act like Nero. This is what the church looks like. So he kind of begins with what it looks like for everybody, and then he moves into what the church looks like. Here we go. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. In Roman culture, every married man was the emperor of his home. We kind of modified that because of those of us that have European descent, a man is the king of his castle, but it comes from that idea. Wives were to submit and obey their husbands as they had once submitted to and obeyed their fathers. In this sense, the cultured Romans and the tribal people of the patriarchal Old Testament were totally in union. Can I quote some James Brown? It was a man's world. <laughs> How many of you are hearing him sing in your head right now? Is it just me? I can't play it because we're broadcast. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I get it. It was a man's world. Paul does not challenge that reality. That is not what he is doing. He's saying this is how to live as Christians within the reality in which you find yourself. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Why does he say this? Because a lot of husbands didn't love their wives and they did treat them harshly. This part's new. The task of the Christian husband is not to rule his wife, it is to love his wife. Men, are you hearing me? The task of the Christian husband is not to rule his wife, it is to love his wife. A longtime friend of my dad's by the name of Dave Munson had an epiphany concerning his marriage. And he said, God showed me that my wife is his little girl. And God told me I better treat her right. This is really that. So wives, I've got a word to you. If your husband's seeking after God and attempting to lead your family toward Christ, you really should encourage him and support him and follow him if he gives you something to follow. And, and if he's a dud, you're just going to have to do it yourself. <laughs> Husbands, it's your job to be the spiritual leader in your home. So what I want you to hear is providing for the spiritual needs of your wife is on you. 
It's not on me. It's on you. And who's watching? God. Number two, healthy Christian families. Verse 20, children, always obey your parents, for it pleases the Lord. Once again, the Old Testament and the Romans are in total union. Uh, If wives had few legal rights or recourse, children really had even less. Did you know technically that a father in both ancient Israel and in the Roman Empire could sell a child into slavery? There's no protection. Did you know a father could execute his own children? I mean, this is the reality. Paul says, okay, this is the reality. However, verse 21, fathers do not aggravate your children or they'll become discouraged. This part was new. I often tell parents that your kids aren't yours. They're God's kids. He's just entrusted you to raise them. Let's say it one more time. Your your kids aren't your kids. They're God's kids. He's just entrusted you to raise them. Fathers are instructed to encourage their children. And, And I love this. Because I think a lot of times as men, I think we are predispositioned to not be encouragers because most of us didn't get a lot of encouragement from our dads. And it sort of just passes along. I can't tell you how many men who fought in World War II I buried who in my final conversations with them back when we were a small church told me that their father never one time told them that they loved them. And now they're old men and that's what they're thinking about. I I get that. Fathers, encourage your children. Why? Because constant criticism takes the spirit right out of a kid. There's no worse feeling than the conviction that you can't please your dad no matter what you do. And tragically, children who believe this to be true about their earthly fathers often project that toward their heavenly fathers, and they live their whole life thinking they can't please God no matter what they do. So men, that's kind of on us. Getting your family to church, getting Jesus into your kids, men, that's on you. You're to be the spiritual leader of your families. Now, women, once again, if your husband's a dud, you're just going to have to lead. But if he's trying, support him. Support him. Husbands, you are called by God to be the spiritual leader of your home. So lean in. Lean in. And then we got to ask, okay, so who's watching the husbands? God is. And that's the whole thing. Who, who's, you remember when you were kids and you'd get in an argument about something and you'd say, who's going to make me? You know that? You know, who's going to make me? Well, God. God's the one. And then we get to number three, healthy Christian employees. Early Christianity ran into a real problem in Roman culture, and it had to do with status. And let me try to give you an idea of that. To the Christian, every person was made in the image of God, and every person had great intrinsic value. Every person was loved by God, and every person was someone that Jesus gave his life for. We were radically equal in the church. The problem was that once you stepped out of church, that was not the case at all. 
And that caused some real problems. Employers had power over their employees, and masters had unthinkable power over slaves. As a Roman citizen, Paul is at the top of the food chain, but he absolutely understands how complex this could be. And in a letter he wrote to about a slave to a master, asking the master to take the slave back as a brother in Christ, in a book called Philemon, we, we get an idea of the complexity of that issue. So what Paul is going to offer here is, is what he's offered in the other relational areas, just mutual accountability. Women, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife. Children, obey your parents. Father, don't, 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 don't discourage them all the time. So let's take a look at healthy Christian employees. Paul does not tear off the social and cultural doors, but what Paul does is create a door that swings both ways. Up to Paul, the door only swung one way. It was a man's world. It swung the husband's way. It swung the parent's way. It swung the employer's way. It swung the master's way. Paul creates a door that swings both ways. So those that the law really failed to protect, Paul's going to have even more instruction as to how they should be properly treated in the eyes of God. We may not think Paul goes nearly far enough, but you've got to understand, in his own time, this is radical stuff. Concerning Christian slaves or servants and their relationships to their employers, here's what he says. Verse 23, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward. And that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what's wrong, you'll be paid back for the wrong you've done. For God has no favorites. So even this idea of favoritism swings both ways. It's, we're all equal. So we might say that to the extent that employers don't ask us to do things immoral, illegal, or violate the commandments of God, we're given eight things that we're supposed to give our employers. Here we go. Number one, we're to obey the instructions of our employers. If they ask us to do something, we're supposed to do it. Number two, we are to work to please our employers. If you've got a boss, if you've got an employer, you should work to please them. Work hard. Number two, obey and work to please God. In our vocations, we also have to keep in mind we're not just working for a company. We're not just working for an individual. We also work for God. Number four, keep the end game in mind. And what's the end game? You don't only represent yourself. You represent Christians everywhere. So be honest, be hardworking, be ethical, be those things. That is the end game. Number six, be mindful of the ultimate boss. At the end of the day, God judges our performance. Number seven, 
Expect no breaks if you disregard Paul. And Paul's saying, you know what? Whether you might be a Christian employee working for a Christian employer, but if you don't give them your very best, you shouldn't expect them to give you any breaks. Don't take advantage of that relationship is what he's saying. And then number eight, remember that God is just. At the end of the day, it's all going to square up. And God does the math. It will reconcile. And who's watching? God. Who is watching as you work? God. Number four, healthy Christian employers. Now he's talking to employers. Chapter four, verse one. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. Slaves were often mistreated and at times cruelly so. It was a common practice to free slaves once they were too old or infirm to contribute to the household. They were simply thrown out of the house and thrown into the street. Just because it was legal, and it was, did not mean that it wasn't cruel, unfair, unjust, and unchristian. Paul is reminding Christian employers, you got to treat everyone fairly and you got to treat them well. Who's watching? God. So let's look at some insights and implications from Paul's teaching. Husbands, lead your families in Christ, love your wife, and don't drive your kids nuts. All right? Here we go. Husbands, that's what you got. Wives, if your husband's trying to spiritually lead your family, let him and support him. You say, well, it doesn't do as well as me. It's entirely likely. (laughs) But if he's trying... Support him in it. Number three, children, obey your parents. I tell my grandkids all the time, let me just be real honest with you guys. If you are good kids and if you do well in school, life's going to go really well for you. And if you don't, life's not going to go nearly so well. So children, obey your parents. Great advice. It's just great advice. Number four, employees, honor God by your hard work. Honor God by your hard work. Number five, employers treat your employees respectfully, justly, and fairly. Here you go. Simple. The church at Colossae must have heard this radical teaching, and it was radical, and they must have wondered, how in the world are we going to pull this stuff off? And then he gets the answer. Verse two, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. So, Let's unpack this as we close. First of all, devote yourself to prayer. Prayer enables us to see people and situations through God's eyes. If you cannot see someone through the eyes of Christ, you haven't prayed long enough yet. When we become a Christian, it changes everything, including how we treat and view one another. You are not better than anybody. Nobody's better than you. We are all straight-up sinners saved only by the grace shown us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We all stand on equal footing before God. We must remember that God will never ask us to do anything he's not empowered us to do. So if God asks us to do this stuff, he must have empowered us to do it. Men, if God asks you to spiritually lead your family, he must have empowered you to do it. Praying for the ability to live in a way that pleases God is always a prayer God wants to answer. Always. 
Number two, we're to do this stuff with a sharp mind. Do everything as unto the Lord. Just remember, no matter what you're doing, if you are working, do it as unto the Lord. If you are a spouse, do that as to the Lord. If you're a friend, do that as to the Lord. If you're a coach, do that as to the Lord. If you're a volunteer, do that as to the Lord. Remember that regardless of your status in the eyes of the world, we all stand equal before God. And God isn't impressed with our resume. God's interested in our right now. He's interested in our right now. So treat everyone in the church as beloved sons and daughters of God because they are. Treat your spouse as if God is watching because he is. Treat your children as if they were God's boys and girls because they are. Work as if God were your boss because he is. Treat your employees as if God were their advocate because he is. And pray as if your faith depended on it because it does. And then finally, with a thankful heart. At the heart of Christian understanding of thanksgiving is gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. What does that gratitude look like? I find it overwhelming. Just find it overwhelming. We were lost, and now we're found. We were sick, and now we're healed. We were destitute, and now we have a home. We were friendless, and now we have a community. We were wanting, and now our needs were met. We were broken, and now we are restored. We were in bondage, but we have been set free. And the more we focus on that, the more our lives will be lives of thanksgiving. We represent more than just ourselves. We represent Christ. What an incredible thing. So the next time that you're tempted to forget everything you know, you guys know what I'm talking about. Next time you're just tempted to forget everything you know, just take a minute, create a little bit of space between impulse and action, and ask yourself, what's on the back of your jersey? And you're going to say 30. (laughs) And that's there. But what's on the back of every single one of our jerseys is the exact same word. Christian. Christian. We do not just represent ourselves. We represent one another. We represent Christ's church. And we represent Christianity. Dear friends, I pray we represent those things well because it's bigger than just us. Would you join me in a closing prayer? Let's just pray this together. Almighty God, do your work in us that we may do your work in this world. Make us into the people we were created to be. Grant us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Forge us into a church community that pleases you. Give us alert minds and thankful hearts that we may represent you well. And we pray all this in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen.